This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Welcome to the August 25th edition of Global Dialogue, our distinguished <laughs> visiting speaker program of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. I'm Patrick Ryan. We thank our council members joining us, and we invite everyone else to become members of this unique organization. The council is a nonpartisan educational nonprofit that works hard to bring the world to the community, especially to our high schools and, and colleges. We're the only such group in the state. You can learn about uh, our programs at tnwac.org, where you can also sign up for our newsletters. You can become a member and you can make a gift to support global affairs awareness in your community. Today's program kicks off our fall calendar, which includes a special election 2020 project that will bring you a terrific slate of topics and some excellent speakers. Our aim is to provide information you need on important issues so you're an informed voter when you head to the voting booth. The election 2020 project is presented in concert with the Belmont University, our terrific partner and home base, and hosts the third presidential debate on October 22nd. Next week, TNWAC will present with several other World Affairs Councils, a special program, COVID-19 Complexities, a global town hall. This two evening uh, project will feature journalists from around the world and public health specialists to give you insights and perspectives difficult to find elsewhere. Lastly, our weekly global news review moves to Wednesday afternoons this week. Join us at 1 p.m. Central Time for analysis and commentary on this week's international developments. Check the calendar on the tnwac.org website to register for all of our programs. This evening, we're pleased to present a critically important topic, one important element of the larger issue of nuclear proliferation, and that is the United States Nuclear Command and Control Authority. In the spring of 1974, I was a crewman, a very young sailor, aboard the nuclear-powered strategic submarine USS George C. Marshall, the gold crew. We got underway from our forward base in Spain, armed with 16 submarine-launched ballistic missiles, Poseidon missiles, they were called, the god of the sea. Weighing in as 65,000 pounds and 34 feet tall, each Poseidon could carry 10 reentry vehicles. Each RV was a W68 thermonuclear weapon with an explosive yield of 30 to 40 kilotons, twice the yield of the little boy and fat man bombs dropped at Hiroshima and Nagasaki 75 years ago. Our boat alone could deliver 160 W-68 weapons over 3,000 miles to targets across the Soviet Union with the explosive power of over 300 Hiroshima bombs. Only one man could order the 120 men on the USS George C. Marshall and her dozens of sisters to carry out such a strike. That was Richard Nixon, President of the United States. He alone had unlimited and instantaneous authority to push the button. We sailed into the Atlantic Ocean depths, unaware that thousands of miles away, the Secretary of Defense, James Schlesinger, was increasingly worried about Nixon's judgment and sobriety in the final chapter of the Watergate saga that would end his presidency. It got to the point, according to historians, that Schlesinger told the White House military staff that if Nixon gave the orders, they were to check with him or Secretary of State Henry Kissinger 
in clear contravention of the president's authority. This evening, you will hear from former Secretary of Defense William Perry and Tom Kalina of the Plowshares Fund about the button, the book they've uh, co-written, and the risk our country endures year after year, decade after decade, from a situation where one human has singular authority to plunge the nation into a nuclear exchange. Please take a minute to read our guest bios on the TNWAC.org uh, website as their achievements are too numerous uh, for me to mention here. But let me tell you uh, first that William Perry served as the U.S. Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering in the Carter administration and then as Secretary of Defense in the Clinton administration. He oversaw the development of the strategic nuclear systems that are currently in our arsenal. His new offset strategy ushered in the age of stealth, smart weapons, GPS, and technologies that change the face of modern warfare. Perry's 2015 memoir, My Journey at the Nuclear Brink, is a personal account of his lifelong effort to reduce nuclear dangers. Tom Kalina is Director of Policy at Plowshares Fund. Tom has 30 years of Washington, D.C. experience in nuclear weapons, missile defense, and nonproliferation issues, and has held senior positions at the Arms Control Association, the Institute for Science and International Security, and the Union of Concerned Scientists. Lisa Perry is the Digital Communications Director for the W.J. Perry Project. She was inspired by her work for her grandfather, William Perry, to take on the charge to translate nuclear issues for her post-Cold War generation. Building on her five years working with Dr. Perry on educating the public on these issues, this summer she released her own project, At the Brink, a podcast exploring the untold stories of nuclear dangers. Following the presentation, Lisa Perry will moderate our conversation, followed by your questions. We thank them for joining us today and thank them for their commitment to inform Americans about this important issue. And we thank you for your time, attention, and good questions to come. And please get your copy of The Button. It's one book you must read. And now, Mr. Tom Kalina. Pat, thank you so much. It's great to be here and it's great to be uh, with all your members and friends in Tennessee. I'm gonna share my screen. Excellent, excellent. So uh, again, Pat, thanks so much for a great introduction. Uh, as Pat said, I'm Tom Colina, Policy Director at the Plowshares Fund. And I had the honor of writing this book with mm -hmm. Secretary Perry. Uh, the book was published in June and we timed it uh, for two main reasons. We wanted to mark the 75th anniversary of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings, which uh, took place this month. And of course, this November, we will choose our next president. Uh, and to us, these events create an historic opportunity to debate the future of US nuclear policy. We've now lived with the bomb for 75 years, and we can ask what should the next president do to reduce the risk uh, of nuclear war? So first, some context, um, the current national crisis of course, we all know about the battered economy, the resurgent coronavirus, uh, racial injustice. All of this creates an important opportunity for public policy change. Uh, for example, the coronavirus shows us that US leaders have been focused on the wrong threats and we're spending too much time on outdated Cold War scenarios and not enough on the real threats we face today. Uh, for example, despite spending $700 billion uh, on defense each year, many Americans simply do not feel safe. 
take for example the trillions the trillion dollars that the u.s plans to spend on nuclear weapons over the next few decades uh, much of this is simply not needed and we should see this as a nuclear piggy bank that the next president can break open and pay for higher priority needs but this is not just about money uh, we need to change policy too uh, the bomb does not address the most serious threats we face. In fact, it can make those threats even worse. So let's unpack this a bit. We like to show this photo as it tends to focus the mind. Here's President Trump with the infamous football, the briefcase that contains everything the president needs to start nuclear war. This is literally how close we are to nuclear war every day, every minute, right now. Uh, President Trump can order an attack on his own authority with no second opinions. Input from Congress or the Secretary of Defense is not required. We don't mean to single out President Trump in this regard. His impulsiveness and disregard for the facts highlight these concerns. But all presidents make mistakes. Uh, all are human and no single human should control the future of humanity. But we, the American people, choose to give presidents this absolute power. Why? Why do we choose to live so close to the brink of disaster? Well, we, as we write in the book, we think it's because U.S. nuclear policy is focused on the wrong threat. We make this central argument. One, U.S. policy is focused on the wrong threat of a surprise nuclear attack from Russia. Such an attack is highly unlikely for the simple reason that it would mean the utter destruction of both sides. And yet U.S. policy has been focused uh, on this threat for decades. And second, here's the big problem. This mistaken threat assessment increases the risk of blundering into nuclear war by mistake. We could start a nuclear war in response to a false alarm, one of the greatest dangers in the world, and we do not need to take this risk. And third, uh, instead of this, we must move away from quick launch policies and give the president more decision time about this. Uh, Bill, turning to you, you had a front row seat to the arms race and met with Soviet and Russian officials many times. Some might challenge our central assertion that a surprise attack from Russia is not a likely threat. Uh, what would you say to that? Oh, indeed, I did meet with dozens of Russian leaders when I was Secretary of Defense from the president Minister of Defense, Minister of Foreign Affairs on down. And before and after that, I met with hundreds of Russians and discussed these issues with them. One thing I can say with great confidence is the Russians are not stupid and the Russians are not suicidal. And therefore, they're not going to be launching a surprise attack because they understand if they do that, it would lead to their own certain destruction. So we have been focusing on the wrong threat. And, and as a result of that, we are now facing a danger we need not face. Today, the danger of a nuclear catastrophe is greater, actually greater than it was during the darkest days of the Cold War. And yet none of our public will understand that. Tom, back to you. All right, let's talk about uh, some of the dangers. The, um, the perceived threat of a surprise attack drives the military requirement they must be ready to launch nuclear weapons at all times within minutes. Uh, that in turn drives these three dangerous policies. First, that the president has sole authority to launch nuclear weapons within minutes with no second opinions or oversight. Second, that the president can order a first strike 
and is not limited to retaliation. Uh, I think most Americans believe that U.S. policy is limited to second strike retaliation, uh, but that in fact is not the case. And third, that the president can launch hundreds of ICBMs on warning of attack without waiting for proof of attack. Uh, Bill, if you could give us your sense of why this combination of policies is so dangerous. Because they lead to the possibility of an accidental war. If the president, for example, gets an alert that a missile strike is on the way to the United States, he has about five minutes to decide whether he should launch our own ground-based missiles, or our own ICBMs, before they are destroyed in their silos. If he decides to do that, and then learns later, a minute later, five minutes later, 10 minutes later, there was a false alarm. There's nothing he can do to call the missiles back. <clears throat> There's nothing to do he can do to destroy them in flight. He will have accidentally started a devastating nuclear war. And so some say, well, this is only a theoretical possibility. It may be theoretical to some, but it's not theoretical to me. Back in the Cold War, when I was the Undersecretary of Defense, I was awoken at three o'clock in the morning once by the watch officer at the North American Air Defense Command. And the officer told me, the first thing he said to me was that his computer was showing 200 ICBMs on the way, on the way from the Soviet Union to the United States. I will never, never forget that moment. So it's not theoretical to me, but he quickly went on to explain. He had determined there was a false alarm. And he wanted me to see if I could help him figure out what had gone wrong with his computers. Well, it took us two days to figure that out. What had gone wrong turned out to be a simple microchip malfunction that had caused the whole computer to be giving a wrong answer. An earlier false alarm we had gotten was not a machine error, it was a human error, where the new computer operator coming on duty put into the computer instead of the operating tape for the computer mistakenly put in a training tape. And so what the computer was showing was a very realistic simulated attack. So we have had false alarms before. The Russians have had false alarms before. Luckily, we have survived all of them. In each case, we have determined before the president had to make that fatal decision and determined there was a false alarm. But we've determined it by with a margin of a few minutes. That's a danger, that's a risk we simply do not have to take and we should not take it. Tom, back to you. Bill, let's expand on the dangers of sole authority. Uh, in 1963, President Kennedy warned that we could stumble into nuclear war due to accident or miscalculation or madness. Can you explain how this might happen? Well, the accident would be a false alarm and I've already discussed that. The madness could be a president who has lost his rational basis for making decisions. We have had several instances in the past where they have faced just such a problem. During the period when President Nixon was in the last few months of his presidency, he was drinking very heavily. That's when the then Secretary of Defense, Jim Schlesinger, concluded that this was a danger and he was trying to find some way to avoid it. He had no legal way of avoiding it. He was trying to somehow get around the system so that he could shortstop the president if he did make the wrong decision. In the case of President Carter, 
he was subjected to a false alarm. I've already described the false alarm to you. In the case of President Kennedy, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, he was subjected to bad information. After the Cuban Missile Crisis was over, the president himself said that he thought the chance of that crisis erupting into a nuclear catastrophe was about one chance in three, one chance in three. Those odds are not very good when you consider that the other end of the odds is the destruction of our civilization. But even when he said that, he did not know that the Soviets, besides having medium-range missiles in Cuba, not yet operational, not yet connected with the nuclear warheads, already had short-range missiles in Cuba, so-called tactical nuclear weapons. And that if President Kennedy had accepted the recommendation, the unanimous recommendation of his Joint Chiefs of Staff to conduct a military operation against Cuba, our troops would have been decimated on the beachhead with these tactical nuclear weapons and a general nuclear war would surely have followed. So when President Kennedy said there was just one chance of three of the Cuban Missile Crisis erupting into a nuclear war, he said that not even realizing that one danger, which we only avoided, we only avoided because Kennedy, for reasons that no one will ever know for sure, did not accept the recommendation of his Joint Chiefs of Staff. Tom, back to you. So let's talk about solutions. What can we do? Uh, the next U.S. president can and must reorient nuclear policy away from a Russian surprise attack to preventing accidental war. Uh, and Bill, please lay out the main arguments uh, as we explain them uh, for how to do this. Most elegant way of doing it, the most conclusive way of doing it, was to abolish nuclear weapons. But there seems to be no likelihood that that's going to happen any time in the foreseeable future. Uh, George Schultz, Henry Kissinger, Sam Nunn, and I made an effort to do that about 10 years ago when we published op-eds in the Wall Street Journal urging that policy be followed. And when President Obama took office, he actually moved in that direction. One, only one month after he took office, he gave his famous speech in Prague, where he says he committed the United States to seek the peace and security of the world without nuclear weapons. But he was unsuccessful in achieving that conflict, that, that goal of his. The opposition was just too fierce. So we don't see any prospect of that happening in the foreseeable future. Instead, we can take specific, less, less grand steps to reduce the danger. We can reduce the danger in various ways, and we can talk about those ways. But one of them, for example, would be to end this sole authority for the president. That to me is one of the most singular and important things that we can do. Uh, other actions that can be taken would be to go off our quick launch policies or even go one step farther and eliminate our ICBMs. They are the, they are the reason that we're in danger of a, of, a false, of a false alarm triggering a nuclear war. We can prohibit the first use of nuclear weapons. And finally, we can actually phase out our ICBMs or land bases and have our and have our nuclear deterrence force consist of the submarine force and our air force. So those are the particular actions that can be taken that don't completely eliminate the danger, but greatly reduce the risk, unnecessary risk we are facing today. Tom, back to you. So we want to wrap this up to give plenty of time for uh, audience questions. Um, so to conclude, just let me say nuclear weapons, we feel, uh, are the president's weapons. 
and every four years we have a chance to change U.S. nuclear policy. And the 75th anniversary of the bomb and the current national crisis could and should inspire us to rethink our approach to national security. U.S. policy, U.S. nuclear policy is doing us more harm than good. It magnifies the dangers we face from the most likely nuclear threat, which is blundering into nuclear war by mistake. And the next president can and must fix this. We know this will be hard. We are up against 75 years of outdated thinking and a $50 billion industry. History tells us that major change like this is only possible if led by the president with public pressure to deliver. So we are looking to educate the next president and the public like you. Thank you very much for your attention. Let me just add to what Tom said. That it is important. It is important to get a president who wants to, to deal with this problem. But we did have a president once who did that, and that was President Obama, and he was unsuccessful. And he was unsuccessful, I think, because the public did not understand the problem, and he did not have the public behind him. So besides educating the president, it's really important to educate the public, and that's what this book is all about. Now, Button is intended to educate the public so that they will, if we get a president who is determined to do something about this, he will have the public support for doing so. Tom, can you tell us a little bit about the button now? Sure. Uh, if you're interested in buying the book, please go to benbellabooks.com and you can use the code button30 to get 30% off. And if you like the book, please rate us on amazon.com. Uh, thanks again, and I will stop sharing my screen. Thanks, Tom. And uh, we're now gonna uh, welcome Lisa Perry to the conversation. Uh, Lisa, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Pat. Uh, and thank you, Tennessee World Affairs Council, for having us. Um, uh, we'll get started. Um, I have a few questions for both of you, and uh, you feel free to both answer however you uh, choose. And then we'll move on to audience-submitted questions. Um, last week, the Democratic Party held their national convention. And this week, right now, is the Republican convention. Of the two presidential candidates that we will get to choose from this November, which has a better track record on reducing nuclear risks? Uh, Bill, do you want me to start on that one? Would you do that and would you specifically talk about the Democratic platform on this issue? Yeah, um, you know, we are of course nonpartisan, but if you're looking at which candidate we think has the uh, more promising nuclear policies, I, I would point to um, Vice President Biden, who has laid out a number of policies that we support. For example, uh, extending the New START Treaty, which we haven't talked about yet, but it's the last treaty that is left standing uh, after President Trump withdrew from the INF Treaty. So it's very important that the New START Treaty be extended. Uh, essentially two weeks after the new president is inaugurated. And Vice President Biden has said he would, he would do that. Vice President Biden has also taken steps towards uh, a policy of no first use, that the United States would never start nuclear war by saying that the sole purpose of nuclear weapons uh, would be to deter their use by others. So we would not use nuclear weapons uh, except to uh, deter and possibly respond to their use by others. So that comes very close to a no first use policy. And therefore that gets us very close to <clears throat> sole authority for first use. 
if the United States doesn't use nuclear weapons first, um, then um, then the sole authority for first use um, would be would be eliminated. And I would just say that comparing that to the the Trump uh, administration's policies, we've seen us get uh, I would say closer and closer to nuclear dangers um, after four years of President Trump. For example, the administration's withdrawal from the INF Treaty the withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal um, and other efforts to walk away from international agreements and commitments. Um, so Bill, anything you wanna add to that? Yeah, I wanna emphasize this is not a partisan issue and should not be a partisan issue. And historically it has never been. Uh, President Nixon, for example, was a strong supporter of arms limitation treaties and perhaps the president's most dramatic effort in this area has been President Reagan. President Reagan, when he met at Reykjavik with Gorbachev, President Gorbachev, came very close to, to agreeing to a treaty to eliminate all nuclear weapons. And even though that did not happen, the two presidents did agree on a statement which should be the watchmark of every president of the United States, which is a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. Every president of the United States should make that statement and mean it. If to say you were to have the ear of the incoming president, whoever that might be, um, what would you recommend first and most immediately that the new president does in order to curb nuclear dangers of the recommendations that you line out in the book? I would first of all say get rid of the quick launch policies we have. That would be easy to do and would be a great, uh, greatly reduce the dangers we face. And specifically, those would be uh, ending sole authority, um, removing the policy of first use, and then taking our ICBMs, our land-based ballistic missiles, um, off high alert status, and then eventually retiring them, because these are the weapons uh, that would be launched first in a crisis and that motivate a quick launch policy. In the book, you discuss in detail presidential sole authority to order the use of nuclear weapons. Historically, can you talk about what the logic was behind this policy and why does that logic not make sense today? Tom, that's for you. <laughs> sure, I'll start with that one. This was an eye-opener uh, for us when we started digging into the history of this because when President Truman uh, first took sole authority to himself, uh, it was not because he was worried about a bolt from the blue from Russia. Of course, in 1945, uh, Russia didn't have nuclear weapons. No one had nuclear weapons other than the United States in 1945. What President Truman was worried about was when he saw the bomb's devastating effect on Japan, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, he was really taken aback. And he wanted to know that he had complete control over when these weapons would be used. So he wanted to take that uh, extreme power out of the hands of the military and have it reside solely under civilian control, uh, all to the good. So he said, only the president shall decide. The problem is he, he gave that authority only to one civilian uh, himself, rather than sharing that authority with the other civilian entity, which would be the Congress. So that is why we would propose that the president share that authority with Congress. So any decision on first use uh, should be a joint executive and congressional decision. I would add to that that by the Constitution, 
that Congress is authorized to show, not the president. And certainly launching a nuclear weapon against a country is a, a strong declaration of words you can possibly make. So Congress should be involved in that. The biggest argument against Congress being involved is that it would slow down the process of making a decision to launch. And in my judgment, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. We ought to get away from this quick launch idea. The theory that we have to launch quickly, I think is just wrong. And, that, and it's that theory in particular, which is causing us so, so much, such a great danger. And I'll follow up on that comment and ask you if you can maybe elaborate on why is it that we wouldn't want to respond quickly to an enemy nuclear attack? Generally, people would assume that once you've been attacked that you want to respond as quickly as possible, but you propose that that actually isn't helpful. Can you talk about why a quick response doesn't benefit us at all? A short answer simply is that the quick response makes us more subject to making a mistake. We need time to deliberate this process. What we're talking about is an action which could eventually end our civilization. So we not, should not rush into a decision that momentous. But there's more to it than that, and I think Tom can add to that. Well, I just want to add here the, the danger of, uh, of cyber attacks. And most people don't realize that our command and control systems and our early warning systems are all networked, all, all run by computers and therefore they're vulnerable to getting hacked. We would think that that might not be the case, but in fact, it is. So if there is an alert, an alarm that a nuclear attack is coming, that could be a false alarm for any number of reasons, but in particular, as a result of a cyber attack. So the president should not respond to that alarm with a nuclear response until he knows that the attack is real. And because of the dangers of, of cyber attacks and the possibility the likelihood that that attack is false, uh, any quick response on the president's behalf could in fact be the president starting nuclear war by mistake, which to us is the, is the ultimate nightmare and what we should be focused on avoiding uh, above all else. Even before the, the uh, presence of cyber attack possibilities, we have had five false alarms. So <clears throat> five false alarms is a history and now on top of that history, we had the additional danger of a cyber attack. In the book, you also address uh, first use of nuclear weapons. Uh, some people may believe that having the right or reserving the right to conduct a first nuclear strike would enhance our deterrence posture. But in the book, you argue that a no first use policy would actually make us safer. Can you talk about why first strike is not necessary for deterrence and how is it that a first strike policy would actually be more dangerous than a second strike policy? The, the essence of deterrence is the ability to respond to any nuclear attack. Um, so it isn't based on first use, it's based on secured second strike. So for example, in the highly unlikely event that Russia would attack the United States with nuclear weapons. Uh, we have survivable submarines at sea. And those submarines would survive that first strike and they would be able to uh, impact, uh, launch a devastating second strike on Russia such that Russia, in our opinion, would never launch that first strike in the first place. But nowhere in there is there a requirement for first strike to maintain deterrence. Uh, we feel that deterrence is, is, is sufficient uh, with retaliation and that first strike is not necessary. And the danger of first strike is that uh, an adversary such as Russia 
if the United States has a first strike policy, Russia feels it has to have a first strike policy, everyone gets on the hair trigger feeling like they don't know when the other side is going to launch. And that creates these false alarm dangers, these quick launch scenarios mm -hmm. that makes it more likely that we will blunder into war by mistake. Let me add that I've sometimes despair of trying to get these points made to my generation. And so we try very hard to appeal to a younger generation to, to, to understand these problems and think about them and be motivated to take action on them. And in that interest, when we do, decided to do a podcast, I asked my granddaughter to do that because she is indeed the younger voice to organize the podcast and to narrate it. So that was why I asked Lisa to do the podcast. But let me ask Lisa, why is it that you agreed to do this, Lisa? Why were you willing to take this on? Well, I will say that you obviously were my inspiration. And when you came out with your, um, with your memoir, um, a few years ago, my journey at the nuclear brink, um, I learned a lot of things that I never quite understood before. And it really opened my eyes to how dangerous the world really is today. And that it's not just a thing from history books, that this is something that my generation needs to take on right now, particularly with the modernization plan that is happening right now. We're having $1.7 trillion of the next 30 years being allotted in our budget for these nuclear weapons. And if we don't get off this ramp right now, if we don't start talking about this within my generation, who is starting to make these decisions, then we'll never be able to get off this ramp. So the time to act is now. And that is why I was very excited to take on the podcast. And um, for those who are interested in getting a brief um, preview into some of the issues we talk about they talk about in the book, you can check out episode two, where we go over a number of the issues that the book addresses. And Tell us again I, the name of the podcast. The, the name of the podcast is At the Brink. You can find it at atthebrink.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Terrific. And Lisa, will, any more questions? I will finish up with just one more question, which is directly to you, Dr. Perry, which is that you just published an op-ed with Representative Rokana entitled, Rethinking U.S. National Security, Masks, Not Missiles. In this op-ed, you challenged the congressional authorization of this $740 billion for the Pentagon budget next year in the face of our growing struggles with coronavirus pandemic. As a former Secretary of Defense, intimately familiar with dealing with the defense budget, what would you say against the claim that cutting the defense budget would hurt our national security? And can you talk a little bit about why you think right now our priorities might be deserved being elsewhere? Well, as a former Secretary of Defense, I have always supported maintaining the readiness of our military forces their ability to respond with conventional weapons to emergencies in the world, and I still do. But even when I was Secretary of Defense, I didn't see the value of the dollars being spent on nuclear weapons. And even then, I was working to try to uh, reduce the emphasis on nuclear weapons. In fact, during the time I was Secretary, I worked cooperatively with the Ministry of Defense of Russia, and between us, we dismantled 8,000 nuclear weapons in that time I was Secretary of Defense between the United States and the countries of the former Soviet Union. And I thought then we were on the way 
to getting rid of this deadly nuclear legacy. But since then, it's come back again. And so now I'm now not a Secretary of Defense, but as a private citizen, I'm working to try to uh, alert the citizenry of this problem so that we can take some action to, so we don't go into this second nuclear war, uh, second, pardon me, second uh, nuclear arms race, which could lead to a nuclear war. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, over to you, Pat. Thanks so much. Uh, we've got some terrific questions and uh, the press of time. Uh, hopefully we'll get to all of them. Let me start with uh, Professor Thomas Schwartz, who's a distinguished professor of history at Vanderbilt University and a great friend of uh, the World Affairs Council. Uh, professor Schwartz asks, what do, you, what do we know about the decision-making about nuclear weapons in Russia and China? And as a follow-up, wouldn't it be politically more palatable to negotiate an agreement on this, this subject with the other states that could attack the United States? We don't know as much as I would like to know, to be honest with you. But we believe that in Russia, which at one time had a policy of requiring several voices in the decision of launch, and they have recently changed it so that President Putin has the sole authority to launch nuclear weapons in Russia. If that is true, the danger in Russia is equally, to the, equal to, equally great as the danger in the United States. Uh, if we change our policy, hopefully that would be some sort of, could be some sort of a guide to them and incentive to them, although there's no, no guarantee that it would, would actually work. Tom, do you have anything to add to that? Just to say that, you know, a no first use policy would be in the U.S. national security interest regardless of what Russia does. So as Bill said, we could, we could offer to do something uh, with Russia, but if they decide not to change their policy, it would still make sense for the United States to change our own policy to no first use. Uh, Jeffrey Phillips asks, what is required in order to change, quote, sole authority? Uh, is it passing a law or some other uh, action to, uh, to implement the changes that uh, you suggest? No, it does not require a law. Tom, would you elaborate on that? There's two ways. I mean, the simplest way would be for the president to declare a no first use policy. Uh, that would essentially mean that the United States would never use nuclear weapons first. And so there would be no sole authority for first use because there would be no first use at all. There would still be president's presidential sole authority for second use, for retaliation. Uh, and we think that could be appropriate. Um, the other way would be through legislation, uh, but that's a more complicated route where Congress could declare uh, that it must declare war before nuclear weapons could be used. There is actually legislation in Congress right now uh, that, would make, that would put that into force. Uh, we don't expect that legislation to pass this year, uh, but those are the two approaches, uh, legislating uh, the sharing of authority uh, and a no first use uh, uh, proposal or proclamation by the president himself. Okay, so that, that covers not just first strike, but any um, decision by the single authority of the president. Uh, it would, uh, I, I think that might be the gist of the question here. The, not, not necessarily first or second use, but the question of one, one human in, in, the, uh, uh, in the chain of command. Well, just to clarify that the, the issue we have uh, is, is sole authority, one person authority for first use. Okay. Um, and, and, and that's the key thing we're trying to uh, prevent, uh, to prohibit. 
uh, we, we don't have an issue with sole authority for second use, because in that case, you're in nuclear war. And in fact, under the Constitution, the president has authority um, on, his own, on his own initiative to uh, order US military action if it's in retaliation or in self-defense of the country. So there's not a constitutional issue with that. Um, it's really the sole authority for first use when the president would have time to come to Congress to consult uh, if he needed to. And uh, we're, we're gonna get a couple of questions here that uh, stray away from uh, the focus of uh, sole authority, but uh, get into issues of nuclear proliferation. Uh, Ambassador Charles Bowers asks, how do we keep nuclear weapons from being put into space? What do we do if an adversary did so? I will say on that nuclear weapons in space is about the worst idea I've ever heard of. Militarization of space is itself a bad idea. We, we have a tremendous dependence on our space programs today, both civilian and military. And so we get more to benefit from our space than probably almost any other nation. And so therefore we have most to lose if these very vulnerable assets come under attack. By all odds, the best interest of the United States are served by there being no militarization of space and certainly no nuclear weapons in space. Uh, Jim Hollingshad asks, and, and this is, a, again, a policy-focused uh, question, current administration messaging allows for all caps, all options as a strategy. Is there a risk to unilaterally committing to take any actions off the table? Uh, is there a risk in doing so? Uh, would it be worth it? And I, I guess this is, uh, you know, when, when we have a crisis situation like the, uh, uh, the messaging with uh, North Korea, fire and fury, uh, that the administration says everything's on the table. Um, can you ever imagine a situation where somebody would take something off the table? Well, we would be proposing that first use should be taken off the table um, for two reasons. One is, you know, I, I think we, we would assert that we've had a de facto no first use policy for years. Uh, I don't think uh, any rational president would use nuclear weapons first. Um, but they simply haven't decided to take the political step uh, and spend the political capital to make it policy. Um, so I think the president should take first use off the table. Uh, for the other reason that often the way presidents rationalize maintaining the option of first use is never to actually exercise it, but to threaten it. You know, presidents like to make threats of first use. But I simply don't think those threats are credible. I don't think other countries take those threats very seriously. Uh, and it, it doesn't behoove the United States to be making threats that it's not gonna follow through on. So I think for all those reasons, uh, we should take first use off the table. We have a question from Ward Cornett who uh, talks about uh, quick response, first strike capability to disarm the enemy seems to make the likelihood of a nuclear exchange so high but he's glad to hear and be reminded that our nuclear submarine force is an adequate second strike capacity. Uh, any, any comments on uh, the submarine forces, one of the legs of the triad? Our one nuclear submarine today, just one, has the capacity to destroy any nation in the world, destroy the entire nation in the world. We uh, think of a Hiroshima bomb, the 
destructive power of one of the warheads on a submarine is about 10 today is about 10 times that amount. And we have on a given submarine, we have hundreds of those warheads. So imagine hundreds of bombs going off in the country, each one of which is perhaps 10 times the power of, of the Hiroshima bomb. And you see that country is being essentially destroyed. So that's one submarine. And we have many more than one submarine. At sea at any given time, we have many submarines. So that is, in my judgment, a, a, a very powerful deterrent force. Uh, beyond that, we also have bombers. We don't keep our bombers airborne, but if there were an emergency, we could, we could do that. And our bombers also can have enough structure power to destroy another country. So that's, you might say, is the, the belt and suspenders behind the, uh, the submarine force, if we ever need one. And just to add, as a result, we feel we don't need the land-based ICBM force. Uh, we have the submarines, we have the bombers. The ICBMs don't add anything to deterrence. Uh, we don't need them for deterrence, yet they create this false alarm, quick use danger, and we'd be safer without them. Let me get a quick question in on uh, the submarine factor and it's uh, the opposing uh, an adversarial uh, submarine force. There was a recent article that uh, posited that even during the Cold War and now, it was not good policy to send our attack submarines into what was called the bastion, uh, the Northern Fleet operating area of the longer range uh, Russian ballistic missile submarines, because putting our attack submarines in proximity to potentially destroy their submarines might uh, reduce the, uh, the effect of deterrence. Well, I, certainly, on, uh, I certainly understand that argument, but I have to say that without Secretary of Defense, I did support <laughs> sending our attack submarine into that bastion for a complicated set of reasons. I would not say that that should be the last word on the subject, but that's the word I, that's the decision I made when I was Secretary. Quick question about the uh, the red phone. Uh, Alan Remsor asks: In 2016, we learned that the red phone was no longer available. What kinds of communication are available to resolve uh, mistakes and and sort out uh, potential false alarms? That's a very significant problem. Never mind the red phone. The fact is that we what the problem is that we don't have a significant dialogue underway with Russia today on nuclear issues. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. Most of them have to do with actions they take in the non-nuclear field because of their bad behavior in other areas like Ukraine, for example, and like meddling with our elections. Uh, we don't have any dialogue with them. And I think it is hugely important to have a dialogue with them on nuclear dangers because while we disagree with them on many issues, we have many, many different evaluations of issues than the Russians do. There's one thing we have in common, which we both fear a nuclear disaster. And we both want to stop that. And we ought to be working together and talking together on issues that could cause some kind of a nuclear catastrophe and actions that our two countries can take that would lower, that would lower the risk of those happening. So we ought to have a dialogue on nuclear issues, even if we do not talk with them on any other issue. I'm going to uh, combine two questions here. Oscar asks, um, He's uh, wondering if the United States was to stop the development of new nuclear weapons and ICBMs, would Russia and China follow suit and perhaps roll into that the prospects for a new start, uh, which expires uh, uh, in another couple of months? 
And uh, James Cottrell asks, what role, if any, does the UN play in disarmament? Well, on, on New START, um, you know, it would be great if the Trump administration would extend the New START treaty. We don't know whether the Trump administration will do that. Um, they've been toying with trying to bring China into it, which, which we see as, as kind of a stalling tactic um, to, uh, to hide behind China's uh, unwillingness to join New START as a reason to let the treaty expire, which we think would be a terrible mistake. If Trump does not extend it, uh, then it will be up to the next president. Uh, and Vice President Biden, were he the next president, has said that uh, he would extend uh, New START in about the two weeks that would remain between the next president being sworn in and the treaty expiring. So we think it could be done under a Biden administration. Uh, we hope it would be done under a Trump administration as well, but um, we just don't know. Uh, in terms of, of modernization, you know, certain parts of the U.S. arsenal will be modernized. Um, the submarines, for example, um, the bombers. The part that we question is the new ground-based ballistic missiles, the ICBMs. Um, and we think that those should not be modernized. Um, that does, if, if the United States decides not to modernize those systems, uh, I would not expect Russia to take the same step because they depend much more on ICBMs than we do and depend less on other systems like, like submarines. So there isn't complete balance and symmetry in how those systems are deployed, but we would certainly hope that if the United States would take a step and not modernize weapons that we, by the way, don't need, that that would help diffuse what we see as a brewing arms race uh, between the two countries that if it gets rolling, we'll spend uh, huge amounts of money that we would rather spend on other things and is very risky uh, from a strategic point of view. Well, we've uh, certainly had a great conversation tonight and, and I'd like to thank you uh, uh, for joining us and walking through some of these issues and explaining uh, what these risks are and, uh, and what the policies uh, might be in the future to alleviate uh, some of these risks. Uh, any last uh, thoughts, uh, Dr. Perry or uh, Tom, that you'd like to share? My only last thought is that we have been trying for years to bring these nuclear dangers down and with very little success. The absolutely necessary condition for any meaningful action in this field is an informed, activated public. That's the purpose of this kind of a talk. That's the purpose of writing the book. And so it's up to you. We can't do it by ourselves. Tom? Yeah, I would just add to that that we really hope that people will uh, read the book, um, understand the issues involved, and, and realize that nuclear war still is a real threat. And unless we avoid nuclear war, we can't get on to all the other issues that we all think are so important. <laughs> Uh, whether they be solving coronavirus uh, or fixing the economy or fixing racial injustice or climate change, which we agree are tremendously important issues. But we also have to deal with this, this issue or simply we won't have a functioning society uh, that can enjoy all those other changes as well. Well, that's terrific. Again, uh, Secretary Perry, thank you so much um, for uh, writing the book. And Tom, thank you for co-authoring uh, the book. Uh, I have a copy of it. It's uh, a terrific read. Uh, Lisa, uh, welcome back. Thank you for uh, joining us tonight as uh, moderator. And uh, again, uh, your podcast, At the Brink, 
uh, highly recommended for people to uh, to get that wherever they get their podcasts and uh, the button at the Ben Bella Books. I bought mine without the 30% discount. Who knew? Um, but that's okay. It's a, a great book. And uh, again, uh, I highly recommend everyone uh, taking a read there. And Lisa, any last comments that you'd like to add before we go? I just encourage people to check out the podcast as well as check out the book. And in general, um, I think what we really need to do now that those of you who are activated on these issues and engaged on these issues is really start a public conversation with the people around you, with your friends and your family. Share these links, share the episodes of the podcast, share the book, post articles. Uh, we really need to foment a national conversation about these issues to actually get things done. Great. Thank you all. Again, a reminder, uh, please consider becoming a member of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. We are a nonprofit organization, and these are tough times for nonprofits. Uh, if you like the uh, programs like this uh, outstanding program this evening, uh, please consider making a gift to the World Affairs Council, becoming a member, and uh, please uh, join us for future broadcasts. Visit tnwac.org for more information. Again, uh, thank you, Secretary Perry, Tom Kalina, and Lisa Perry. And to everyone, uh, please be safe and have a great uh, evening. Thank you. Thank you.